reading from genesis the sons of noah who went forth from the ark were sham ham and jepheth ham was the father of canaan these three were the sons of noah and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent and ham the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Jepheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Curse be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Jebeth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and not, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In the land of Zebulun and in the land of Nephthalim, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, and the Gentile, of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they laid down their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Although I don't want to be over dramatic, uh, I feel the need to warn you that today's sermon will include some disturbing subject matter. So, listener discretion is advised. And this is not a joke, <laughs> actually. Uh, if you find you need to step out uh, and some of the stuff I'm talking about, that's A-OK. -okay. In our country, 
1994 will likely always be remembered for the summer of O.J. Simpson and the media circus and racial tensions that consumed the country for the next year and a half. But in the spring of 1994, the nightly news was displaying images from the small African nation of Rwanda where bodies, human lives, were being destroyed on an unfathomable scale. Beginning during the week after Easter in early April, the Hutu people who were in the majority in Rwanda began slaughtering the minority Tutsi people as well as any Hutus who refused to participate in the killing. And after 100 days, more than 800,000 were dead. Unfortunately, genocides have been no stranger to history, especially recent history, as we saw six genocides in the 20th century alone, the most well-known, of course, being the Holocaust of more than 6 million Jews in Nazi Germany. But there are two ways that the Hutus' slaughter of Tutsis in Rwanda that that slaughter was unique. First, for the most part, these were personal killings done by the community. What I mean is that in many of the other instances of genocide in the 20th century, there was often a significant buffer between most individuals and the atrocities that were taking place. There were often special soldiers, such as the SS in Nazi Germany, who were tasked with carrying out the killings, right? Making it possible for many average citizens to, to plead ignorance. There's also typically the use of technology. Again, in Nazi Germany, gas chambers, or in other cases, rifles, which allowed some distance between the victims and their perpetrators. This was not the case in Rwanda where almost all of the 800,000 who were killed were killed by the hands of their own neighbors with machetes. But what's also unique about these 800,000 killings is that almost all of them were perpetrated by Christians on fellow Christians. Almost all of them were Christians on fellow Christians. And I mean Christians who knew one another. In fact, in some cases, the location where the killings took place was in the churches where Hutu and Tutsi had previously worshipped together the week before on Easter Sunday. All of this can only lead us to wonder, how could this happen? How could this have happened? Well, this is the subject of a book titled Mirror to the Church, which I want to draw from over this week and next. It's written by a Roman Catholic priest named Emmanuel Catangoli. And Catangoli is a professor of theology and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame, before that uh, Duke University. But he is ethnically a Rwandan. In fact, Emmanuel's father was Hutu, but his mother was Tutsi. Well, in seeking an explanation for how this mostly Christian-on-Christian mass murder could have occurred, 
It's tempting for us to assume that Hutu and Tutsi were two tribes who had always been at war. In fact, this was a common narrative among Western media as it transpired in 1994, to just assume that these were ancient hatreds and age-old animosities between two tribes who'd been at each other forever. That actually wasn't the case at all. Katangoli explains that in the pre-colonial kingdom of Rwanda, that is, before the Europeans arrived, the distinction between Hutu and Tutsi had been social and economic, as its origin was historically just a division of the kingdom's labor. Right? The Hutus, who were more numerous, were farmers, while the Tutsis raised livestock. And because cows were considered the main symbol of wealth in Rwanda, as is the case in many African countries, this meant that the Tutsis historically maintained greater economic power while the Hutus maintain greater numerical power. There are more of them. But it is important to emphasize that this pre-colonial hierarchy between Tutsi and Hutu had been purely based on social, economic, and political factors as opposed to any sort of ethnic or tribal difference. It was purely social, economic, and political distinction. Hutu and Tutsi all spoke the same language. They frequently intermarried and were in community together. But most importantly, there is no record of any group violence of Hutus versus Tutsis prior to the arrival of Europeans at the turn of the 20th century. No record of it at all. Any violence between them. There is no age-old problem. Indeed, it was only after the arrival of European colonialists and Christian missionaries that any violence arose between these two groups of Rwandans. And this is because the cause of this is that when the Europeans came, they brought with them a pernicious ideology about races and tribes that was intertwined in their Christian faith. Now, the reason that European racial ideology was intertwined with the Christian faith is because it had long been justified by a distorted reading of the passage we read this morning from Genesis 9. You may or may not be surprised to learn that 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 is actually not appointed in the lectionary, ever. (laughs) I threw it in there this morning. The lectionary is like, eh, we'll move on to Genesis 12 or something. (laughs) Why? Because the passage describes one a, a, a certain day after the big flood, right? This is after the flood, when Noah got drunk and passed out naked in his tent. Right? And one of Noah's three sons, named Ham, is said to have, quote, seen his father's nakedness and told his brothers Shem and Japheth about it. And so Shem and Japheth carefully went and covered Noah up without looking at him. But when Noah woke up, he spoke a curse over Ham, and particularly over Ham's son, Canaan, for what Ham had done. So that's what happens in the passage, right? But as far back as the first century B.C. in Judaism, we can find evidence of this passage being interpreted in an extremely problematic and disturbing way that associates both Ham's sin and Noah's curse on Ham 
associates all of that with dark skin color. You say, well, how'd they come up with that? Good question. Never in Genesis 9 does anything said about Ham's skin. But the etymology of his name, the name Ham, means dark or brown. And so the legend developed that Ham was dark-skinned. And then from that, a whole other legend grew out of that that Ham's supposed skin color, skin color excuse me, Freudian slip there, that his skin color was a result of being cursed for violating sexual prohibitions on the ark, that his skin color was a result of his sin and a mark of his sin. So skin color was being linked with a level of one's sinfulness. That the darker the shade of one's skin was an indication of a greater level of sin or wickedness. I'm sure you can start to imagine how dangerous these ideas could be. Particularly for those Europeans. When you get, when you get that idea in the hands of Europeans who are looking to make a buck off of Africans' bodies through slave trade and Africans' resources. Just in case it's not obvious, I should say that this curse of Ham ideology, also known as the Hamitic myth, is wrong. It is one of the worst examples of reckless and abusive scriptural interpretation you'll find in the history of the church. But this curse of Ham ideology was advanced here and there through the Middle Ages. It was kept alive enough that in the 16th century it began to be picked up and used by European colonialists who sought to promote the myth of there being different racial types. And they were promoting this myth for economic, economically motivated reasons. Right? So let me explain the shift they were trying to make. The dominant idea up to that time, of course, had been that there was one single human race who descended from Adam and Eve. Right? But during this area, era, after the Reformation, pro-slavery intellectuals began seeking to use the curse of Ham interpretation to convince people otherwise, to convince people that rather than there being one human race, that within humans there were actually three sects, three races of humans from the three sons of Noah who each had their own different fates and roles to play in the unfolding of history. And these ideas paired quite conveniently with other ideas emerging, the category, these categories for societies either being primitive or, quote, advanced, that were emerging in the late 17 and 1800s. The German philosopher Hegel popularized the notion that civilizations were primitive to the extent that they diverged from European norms, right? while the, the beacon and gold standard of human advancement in his mind was German society, German culture. So the reason I'm telling you all of this is because it's important for us to understand that for almost all of the European colonialists and missionaries, Christian missionaries seeking to bring the gospel, right, who headed to Africa during the 19th century, for almost all of them, right, this racial and societal ideology was simply taken for granted as true, as the way things were. And what this means is that everyone they encountered when they arrived in Africa, they viewed them through the lens of race. Okay? 
and worse through the idea of an inequality between the races that in their minds have been biblically ordained. So at the end of the 19th century, when when Africa was subdivided up among the European nations, kind of a sick fantasy draft, Germany drew Rwanda. And when the Germans arrived there in 1897, what they encountered were these two social classes I mentioned, the Hutus and the Tutsis, right? Well, they decided that instead of these just being social classes that were sort of a division of labor type of deal, they decided that these were actually two different races or ethnicities. And worse, get this, they concluded that the Hutus must have been descendants of Ham, right? Which was not a good thing, right, in their mind but that the Tutsis, who had more power and wealth, were actually descendants of one of Noah's other sons, Shem. And therefore, the Tutsis were racially superior, right? So there weren't just two races. One was actually uh, kind of ontologically better than the other one, right? In fact, the Europeans began teaching the myth that these two groups were, quote, races that had always existed. And that actually, uh, in the way back in time, the Tutsis, the Tutsi race, had invaded the land now known as Rwanda to set up more advanced civilizations than the Hutus would have been capable of. They suggested that the, the, the Tutsis actually came in from Ethiopia down the river in order to come into the Hutus and kind of teach them how to be civilized. Let's think about how pernicious that story is. So for the next half century, this is, you know, 1900 to 1950, for the next half century, the Europeans engaged primarily with the Tutsis, right? The ones they thought were kind of the superior peoples, right? Who they believed were destined and God-ordained to rule over the inferior Hutus. So I, I think you could probably see now how the seeds of genocide had been planted. Well, after World War I, the German presence in Rwanda was replaced by the Belgians. But the Belgians perpetuated the exact same racial ideology. They taught that the Tutsis were, nat- were natural-born leaders and that Hutus were the inferior descendants of Ham. They established also European schools to educate future leaders and to share the gospel of Jesus with children. And these schools were mostly run by Christian missionaries, but only Tutsi children were welcome to attend. And in 1933, Rwandans were issued identity cards which stated their identity as either Hutu or Tutsi. As Katangoli laments, what had once been a social role and then a racial category was now an essential part of every Rwandan's identity, frozen in time by a piece of paper that told each person who they were, what their place was. In 1931, the king of Rwanda had been deposed by the Belgians and promptly replaced by his son, who was immediately converted to Christianity, whatever that means, right? Kind of a, who knows, and baptized. And in 1945, Rwanda was declared a, quote, Christian nation. It was declared on the books, we are a Christian nation. 
But in the late 1950s, political division in Belgium opened the door in Rwanda for a Hutu revolt, or peasant revolution. And in 1959, the Tutsi king was assassinated. The Hutus came into power, and they obtained Rwandan independence from Belgium. But in the process, they massacred 20,000 Tutsis. But despite this violence, in the second half of the 20th century, Rwanda would come to be viewed as a remarkable success story from the perspective of the Western church. As the level of Christian revival that spread throughout the nation of Rwanda in the last half of the 20th century, it was unparalleled compared to any other African country. I mean, it was the convert, everybody was converted to Jesus. So much that by the 1980s, Christian mission journals and textbooks were holding up Rwanda as a model for the evangelization of Africa. And seminaries would study Rwanda asking how they might use similar strategies elsewhere to share the good news in other places of Africa and other countries. So get this statistic. By the 1990s, 85% of Rwandans were Christian. 85%. Meaning that on Easter Sunday, 1994, easily three-quarters of the country were in church celebrating Jesus' resurrection. But in the couple of years leading up to those 94 to, to 1994, the tensions between Hutu and Tutsi had been mounting. Officials in the Hutu government had been secretly stockpiling small arms like machetes and rifles. And in 1993, a far-right radio station was established with the backing of government officials and wealthy Hutus. And it, its goal was to stoke hatred with anti-Tutsi propaganda, calling them cockroaches who should be killed. The West didn't take this very seriously and thought it was kind of a joke. But then on Wednesday, the Wednesday after Easter in 1994, the match was lit. The Hutu president of Rwanda, his plane was shot down by Tutsi rebels as it came in for landing. And after this, that radio station began telling Hutus to, quote, go to work, which everyone knew meant get your machetes and kill Tutsis. The radio would even report Tutsis' names and addresses. Just listen to how a Hutu man named Aldebert, Aldebert, I think, recalls the spell of tribalism overtaking him and his fellow believers in the church. This is from Katangole's book, which says, The Saturday after the president's plane crash, the Saturday of Easter week, Adalbert went to his usual choir practice at the church in Kabungo. He says, We sang hymns in good feeling with our Tutsi compatriots, our voices still blending in chorus, he remembers. But when they returned for mass the next morning, the Tutsis were not there, right? They were scared. They'd already fled into the bush. He says this angered the Hutus in the church, including Aldebar, and they immediately organized to chase after the Tutsi church members. Aldebar reports, quote, We left the Lord in our prayers inside to rush home we changed from our Sunday best into our workaday clothes. 
We grabbed clubs and machetes and went straight off to kill him. Brothers and sisters who had sung together the day before were suddenly mortal enemies. Well, the root of all this horror is the mentality of tribalism which is incompatible with the Christian faith. And we can see this in some of our other scriptures today. In Matthew, we see that after John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus immediately leaves the region near the big city of Jerusalem. And he heads out to the sticks in a move that's so unexpected by Matthew that Matthew has to dig up a prophecy to kind of explain it away. Well, he was doing this to fulfill a prophecy. But in doing this, Jesus shows his values for all people, not just those in power, the elite in Jerusalem, where his ministry will end, but for all people. And indeed, Christ was born into a circumstance in Jewish society, a circumstance of tribalism, where the Jews were taught from the crib to hate Samaritans. right? And yet time and again in his adult ministry, Jesus ignores these dehumanizing prejudices and treats them all as of equal worth. Then in 1 Corinthians today, we see Paul coming up against the sinful tendency of tribalism within the church. Right? Some believers were identifying as followers of Paul and others of Apollos and still others of, of Cephas, was Peter. Of course, it was already bearing bad fruit. It would only get worse if it hadn't been addressed. So tribalism of any sort, I want to be clear, Tribalism of any sort is sin. Whether it occurs as an us versus them within the church or toward the outside world, whenever Christians are scapegoating other people for their own lack of peace, it shows we are missing, at least in that moment, we are missing the very heart of the gospel. And yet, tribalism can be a very, very difficult sin to recognize in ourselves. Or hard to admit. In fact, it's very tempting for us to think of tribalism as as other people's problem, right? Particularly the people who we are tribalistic against. (laughs) They're tribalistic. (laughs) Point the finger and... Americans and other Westerners can be especially prone to think of tribes as like this African thing, right? an African problem, as if civilization, whatever that means, has risen us above that sinful tendency. No, no, no. Tribalism is precisely what has raised the division and divisiveness in our country today to unprecedented levels. It's tribalism. People are afraid. They're thinking in their own self-interest, they're seeing different others and saying, uh-uh. Okay. All of this that we're dealing with today, it stems out of propaganda from left and right, from white, black, and in between, from Christian and atheist, right? Propaganda that weights arguments inaccurately and unfairly and makes neighbors into enemies. That's what it does. Now, of course, we have no authority over anybody's mindset but our own. We can certainly control what, what channels we turn to or listen to that are making money off of stoking tribalism in our hearts. We don't have authority over anybody's mindset but our own. But, but we have to be clear about its roots in order to combat it. 
And Katangoli explains that tribalism, tribalism is really rooted in stories. It's rooted in stories. For example, the first European colonialist who arrived in Rwanda, told that story that Tutsis had originally been invaders who'd come down the Kagera River from Ethiopia. According to that story, these Tutsis were ethnically superior, right? Therefore, they'd set up this more advanced civilization that the Hutus couldn't pull off. But I should say, this wasn't some fairy tale people just talked about. This was taught in Rwandan history books. It was believed in advance by Christian missionaries who didn't question at all. That's the story. Well, it was such a powerful story that in the 1994 genocide, the Kagera River was literally flooded with bodies of dead Tutsis that the Hutus were symbolically sending back up the river to Ethiopia. Stories are powerful. But again, not just an African thing. As Americans, we have stories like this too. In the 1800s, almost every American believed in the story of manifest destiny, which was the idea that God wanted the United States to spread out over the North American continent and take control of as much territory as possible, regardless of what had to be done with the less civilized natives, whether through displacing them or just killing them. The first genocide of the modern era was committed by our ancestors, right? By the, and the U.S. government has never taken responsibility for it, ever, right? You just tweak the history books, don't talk about it. But tribalism based on stories isn't just something that occurs over in Africa or in our ancient history. If we were to ask anybody today about how their enemies became their enemies... Anybody up on, you know, on the street, anybody in here, right? We would probably respond by telling a story. A story that we've told in our minds over and over and over. Well, it all started when such and such politician did this. Or when special interest group did that. Or when the atheists started coming after prayer in our schools, right? Or whatever, right? This is how some of the stories about our domestic enemies go. But, but Katangoli suggests there are even deeper stories that govern how Americans view life in relation to the world around. And I'm not trying to beat up on Americans. I'm just trying to talk about the reality of what, how we view the world so that we can then distinguish what's of the kingdom and what's not. So Katangoli points out that, that American political theory is based in large part on the work of Thomas Hobbes, a, a 17th century philosopher. But Hobbes suggested that all humans are in a state of war against one another. That we will be driven only by self-interest and that chaos can only be avoided through contracts between parties and nations where individual interests are surrendered only in exchange for some greater benefit. Well, that idea, we may not even know who Thomas Hobbes is, but that idea has been so influential in the American mind that, that we don't have to be told. Right? Americans just take for granted that, that a state of war between our nations and others is just inevitable. It's just the way things are. Right? And so we better get in line to fight that battle. Additionally, Katangoli notes our capitalist economy is based largely upon the thought of, of 18th century philosopher Adam Smith, who, 
who emphasized that everyone is in competition for a limited amount of resources. Again, a war with one another, where everyone should compete and the strongest will survive. So both Hobbes and Smith, the fathers of kind of the thought that governs Westernism, they both celebrate the pursuit of self-interest and the pursuit of greed. We wonder why those are blind spots for us in the church. Now, you may say, well, you know, taking on its holy influence of Hobbes and Smith has surely been a great boon. America's the most successful empire in the history of the world. And maybe that's true from the perspective of worldly success and prosperity. What about all of the nameless, faceless people who have been collateral damage for the achievement? See, where the problem comes in is that while most Americans don't even know anything about Hobbes or Smith, those stories that they told tend to run deeper in our hearts than the story of the gospel. Right? These secular stories run deeper than the story of the gospel, which runs shallow. That's where we get a problem. We may not even recognize that. Right? Stuff we just take so for granted. So there are stories we've been told or that we just take for granted or and don't even have to be told, which may run deeper than the story of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And this is what led to the the genocide in Rwanda. The stories they had been told or assumed ran deeper than the the gospel did in their hearts. When, When a cardinal of the Roman church visited Rwanda on behalf of the pope after the genocide, he asked the assembled church leaders, he said, are you saying that the blood of tribalism is deeper than the waters of baptism? Are you saying the blood of tribalism is deeper than the waters of baptism? And one leader said, yes, it is. That's what we're saying. The story of tribalism was deeper than the story of the gospel. So what won out? How could a genocide like this occur in the most Christian nation, Christian nation in the world? Well, in large part, the missionaries had focused on converting Rwandans, not discipling them. They wanted conversions. In the box in your bulletin, I've printed Jesus' great commission from Matthew 28 that therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Western evangelism has often stopped right there, right? But Jesus continues, and verse 20 is part of the Great Commission, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. See, typically the church's domestic evangelism here in, here in America and our international evangelism, our mission work, has been focused almost entirely on verse 19, right? And there's a few reasons for that, you know, including, first of all, that you know, the gospel that's so most popular in America is a distorted one that's all about fire insurance for some afterlife instead of about the kingdom of God, number one. I think another reason for this is probably just about ego. Right? We live in a society that's all about numbers and size. So if, if, West, if, if we want to feel good about ourselves and feel like we're being faithful to God, the tendency is to measure the success of churches, or uh, the, the, the success of ministry with numbers, right? Numbers equal success. 
Because relatively speaking, conversion is a lot easier than discipleship. I mean, you don't even have to be a disciple yourself to get conversions. If you're a really good salesman, pretty skilled at emotional manipulation, you can get some success, right? You can get some numbers. You don't have to be a disciple yourself to make conversion. You do have to be a disciple to make disciples. And it's only through discipleship that the stories we live by, that we've inherited from our sin, from our sinful society, are it's only through discipleship that those can begin to be replaced with the story of the kingdom of God. Not through conversion. So what makes any of us susceptible to tribalism, to making enemies out of others within the church or within the country or around the globe, is when we fail to question the stories that we've been told. When we, we, we take stories just for granted and and haven't even had to have been told them, right? But we don't examine what's underneath that. But I get that, that questioning these stories is a really big ask. To sit there and take our lives and the things we believe and say, does that really line up with the gospel? Does that really line up with the gospel? Does this thing I've invested so much of my passion and energy and time and ranting and raving actually line up with the gospel? That's a scary task. I mean, that takes a lot of courage. In case in point, would you believe that in Rwanda, even after tribalism claimed almost a million lives, they still haven't really questioned the racial ideology that was handed to them. They still carry Hutu and Tutsi identity cards if you were to go over there today. right? They, they haven't questioned it. right? It's just taken for granted. And questioning that kind of stuff is hard. It's hard work scary. Right? But that, that propaganda has been so powerful that they can't imagine living without those categories. What categories might, might we need to surrender up to Jesus that we just we can't imagine living without? Well, as scary as it is, as citizens of the kingdom, we must recognize that this is the path to true freedom. To recognize and then question any and every story influencing our lives by holding it up against the person of Christ. This is the only way that so many fears and hatreds that enslave us can actually be rooted out. Jesus' invitation, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's an invitation to repent of any anti-kingdom stories we've accepted uncritically as just being the way things are. Because just because we felt like that's the way things are, that may not be the way things are in his kingdom. 